This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Necessary Roughness, brought to you by Southfield Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram. With 11-year NFL veteran, Big Ten Offensive Lineman of the Year, and captain of the National Championship Michigan Wolverines, John Jansen. And 10-year NFL veteran, two-time Pro Bowl offensive tackle, and Super Bowl champion with the Green Bay Packers, T.J. Lang. Now, here's John Jansen and T.J. Lang. Well, we are finally through the final stage uh, or landmark of summer, and that was 4th of July, Independence Day. We were running downhill now towards... The start of training camp, which for the Detroit Lions will be July the 26th is when the vets report. I believe the 23rd is when rookies and probably quarterbacks and centers will report. But uh, first day for season ticket holders to attend Lions training camp will be July 30th. And then early in August, everybody will be welcome down at Allen Park. Looking forward to seeing everybody down there. TJ and I will be around. Uh, make sure you stop by, say hi, give us any questions that you have uh, that you want to know answers to before we hit the start of the regular season and throughout training camp. But uh, TJ, uh, I hope you had a, uh, a good 4th of July weekend. How was, uh, how was it spent? It was a, uh, I got to tell you, it was a hell of a weekend. Weather was great. You couldn't ask for any better weather. perfect. Starting Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, now we're recording Tuesday. Yesterday, the 4th. Spectacular. Um, got out on the lake a little bit. Spent some time in the pool. Um, but I don't know. if Are you like me? Do you have neighbors that celebrate the 12 days of 4th of July where there's just fireworks for So please two don't tell me you weeks? get annoyed with fireworks. I, do, I absolutely do. I, I, I'm oh, not a firework guy. A- I don't... I don't mind watching them, but when it's like twelve fifteen and they're still going off and your dog's going nuts, I don't know. Do you have a dog? I John? do have a dog. Does your dog not like fireworks like 99% of other dogs? No, my dog doesn't care. My kids don't care. Yeah, uh, Teddy, my nine-month-old, doesn't care. And if if my dog did, I, I, got, I got a basement. Put the dog in the basement for the night. Let it go to sleep. You go to sleep. I could literally, and I, we talked about this on the morning show, I fell asleep. I went to took, take the kids to see the new Top Gun movie, Maverick. I fell asleep after laying in my Lazy Boy for about five minutes, and I didn't wake up until about 40 minutes left in the movie. So I can sleep through damn near everything. So fireworks is the least of my concerns at midnight. Well, maybe I'm just hitting that like grouchy old man stage where... Like last night, you know, Monday night. I mean, I understand it's the fourth and everything, but it's also a Monday. People have to get up and go to work. And oh, yeah. what time I know did you, you have to, to go to work. Up. What time did you get I, up to go I, to work? I, I you you woke up at, at 9.30 <laughs> to get here at 10 in the morning. I had to get up at 8. But I know you're a guy. You obviously get up super early to do your morning show at 6 a.m. Um, 
and look, I mean, even last night, you know, 10, 30, 11, I'm like, okay, not really bothering me yet. But then it hit like 11.45 and I'm like, all right, like this is this is enough. I, I'm 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 done. I can't take any more of it. Um, but so I I don't know. I mean, it's just the fireworks. Listen, they're great to watch. They're great to take the kids to go to a nice big show. But yeah, um, when you have neighbors competing over who can do the best fireworks show until you know one o'clock in the morning, yeah, it's a little bit excessive. I don't know. Maybe I'm just starting to turn into stay off my lawn type of guy and just the whole, You're the there. whole grouchy neighbor. You're I think, there. <laughs> I think I'm the grouchiest 34-year-old uh, oh, in the neighborhood. But no, I mean, other than that, I, I got to tell you, it was, a, uh, it was an awesome weekend. Spent, uh, spent some time with some family, um, some friends, and anytime you get out on the lake, John, I know you're a... Uh, you're an avid fisherman. Anytime you get on the lake, it's always a good day. It is a good day, and it was a great weekend to be on the lake. I got a chance to get out there on Saturday, again on Monday, uh, did some fishing. Uh, we were up on Cass Lake, and uh, Jack, my son, my oldest son, uh, did a, you know, caught a bunch of pike, caught some nice smallmouth, caught a three-pounder. So we had a great day on the lake. The girls got to swim. Uh, we all enjoyed it, so it was uh, it was a beautiful weekend, um, and obviously celebrating, uh, uh, you know, the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. Freedom. And I don't think that uh, hey, fireworks for a couple of days. All right, now I know you mentioned the, the twelve days of the Fourth of July. You know, one or two days ahead of the fourth, obviously on the fourth, and even one or two days after, I'm fine with fourth with with the fireworks. After that, it gets to be excess an, an annoyance, unnecessary. But it's it's still okay. It's summer. We're going to enjoy every bit of it, twenty four hours a day for as many days as we possibly can during the months of summer here in Michigan. Uh, and we are, it seems like ever so slowly edging towards the start of training camp as we talk about some Detroit Lions football. And gosh, about three weeks away now. I know it's it's coming, uh, and you know, we're going to both take a little bit of time uh, before we get there. I don't think we're going to miss any episodes here uh, on the podcast, but um, you know the final trips are done because once football season uh, ramps up, uh, meaning basically the start of training camp, whether we're playing or not, we what we, with what we do, uh, vacation and getaways uh, are pretty much non-available. So we heard early in the offseason that the Detroit Lions, Dan Campbell made the announcement that they were going to move from what they had been last year on defense, a 3-4 odd front to more of a uh, 4-3 look. Now, they're still going to have components of both that they're going to use because different packages, different you know scenarios require that you, you know, the best selection might be Three, four, look, wide rush ends um, or outside linebackers, especially with Charles Harris. And now you've got Aiden who played in that system last year at Michigan, Romeo Cara coming back. But going to a 4-3 defense, how does the personnel that the Detroit Lions have, how does it fit into that scheme? Is that a good move in your mind or would they be better off staying with that 3-4 style? No, I think it's a, I think it's a smart move. I think, um, and honestly, it's a sign to me of 
um, good coaching, coaching coaches that are willing to adapt to the personnel that they have. Um, last year, obviously, uh, you know, weren't great against the run. Obviously, we know they weren't great getting to the quarterback. Yeah. Um, it just seemed like they had the wrong type of bodies, wrong type of players to uh, fit in what they were trying to do, especially at the line of scrimmage. A lot of the two gaps, a lot of the read, playing lateral instead of playing vertical and getting in the backfield and being disruptive. But uh, you take a look at some of the guys now, especially the young players. I mean, look at, uh, you know, Levi Onzerike. I mean, everybody, you know, when he got drafted last year, I mean, they started showing highlights and it's like, holy like this guy is in the backfield before the ball's almost yeah. handed off, right? That was what he was good at. That's what he excelled at. And then, you know, his rookie year, they asked him to do a little bit something different, you know, kind of eat up a couple double teams at the line of two scrimmage gapper. and two gap and didn't really fit what he was really good at out of college. You look at uh, even the rookies this year, Pascal and, uh, and Aiden Hutchinson. I mean, what were they best at in college? It was getting in the backfield and being disruptive, whether it was rushing the passer or whether it was, uh, you know, on first and second down run plays. So uh, I think it's a sign that, look, we've got some really explosive athletes on this defensive line. Why are we just going to make them sit at the line of scrimmage and, and eat up blocks when we can, you know, we've they've got the ability to get in the backfield and be the hell of disruptive. Now, I'll tell you from my 10 years of playing, John, and I, I, I'm interested to see uh, what your response is to this. I would rather play against a 3-4 defense, two-gapping D-tackles any day of the week than guys that just jet off the ball. You don't know what they're doing. Sometimes it's that quick rip inside and boom. Sometimes they just line up in a wide three-tech or a wide five, and they just blow up the field, and it's like you can't even get your feet in the ground before the guys are already making contact with you. Yeah, but you're a guard in a 3-4 defense. You're uncovered. Why would you want to say, I want more work to do? a lot of times these three over me or a two. A lot of times these teams now, run the three four style but it's more of an under front so you get a yeah. lot of three tech nose five tech uh that type of style of defense but um i just thought it was i i thought it was easier maybe it was just my style of game just getting on guys quick at the line of scrimmage um and having them have to read and react before they get into a move yeah. uh, but when you have d tackles that just jet off the ball as fast as an aaron donald type guy um even, you know, Sue was really good at it when he was with the Lions, uh, just getting in the backfield and trying to penetrate. Um, that is what is more most disruptive, I think, to an offense. So uh, I think it, it not only fits their personnel that they have um, on the defensive line, but also you, you we talked about it last week. The biggest position I think that has question marks around it uh, is the linebacker position, right? The guys that are going to c- be competing there. So if you have defensive linemen that are able to take some of that pressure off your linebackers, your linebackers by getting disruptive, getting in the backfield, throwing off, uh, you know, the combinations, the double teams, uh, the zone blocking, whatever the opposing offense is trying to do, that's going to help out what's arguably maybe your weakest position right now on the field being the linebacker position. So I think they've got the personnel in the front, uh, the D front to be able to get, be disruptive, get in the backfield, um, make guys change direction and then let your linebackers, uh, kind of ease up the workload for them, at least when it comes to, uh, defending the run. Yeah. And you know, from a tackles perspective, um, I would much rather face in the run game, a 3-4 defense because you've got that, whether it's a four-eye, inside-eye of the tackle, a head-up four, or a five, you know, you whenever I can touch the guy that I'm supposed to block in the run game, it makes it much easier, especially, you know, at Washington and even my first, you know, my, my years in Detroit, 
we were largely a zone blocking team. Read that that you know four eye and double team with the guard up to the linebacker. So you it creates good angles for double teams. Now, in terms of pass blocking, the three four for a tackle absolutely sucks because you got a guy like a Charles Harris or, and I'm just using the, the, the personnel that the Lions have, Romeo Aquara, Aiden Hutchinson, and they are, you've got a guy over top of you, plus the guy that you're actually supposed to set to is a wide nine, no hand in the dirt, just coming, you know, busting balls off the edge. That's a tough position for the tackle to be in. But you mentioned... You know, it's a good move for the personnel that they have. Aleem McNeil is a penetrating st- style of player. Levi Onzerike, you mentioned him, is certainly a penetrating style of defensive tackle. Michael Brockers, I think it fits him well. And and hopefully we could see a healthy Michael Brockers and, and get more out of him this season. But when you create penetration in the run game, it cuts off half of the offensive line and it simply is the one thing that will kill a run game is penetration because if you're if you're pulling a guard and he can't get around you're down a blocker if you are running a a zone read and your guard and tackle or your center and guard can't get on the same level and pass off a double team then there's no good angles to get to the linebackers. So they are protecting the linebackers. And quite honestly, in the pass game, if you get penetration from either a two, a one, a three technique, anywhere from that defensive tackle position, and guards and tackles are on different levels, it's really hard to pass off games. So penetration certainly kills in either the run or or you know trying to you know protect the pass. But for this group... I think if you're if you're going to stop the run, you create some penetration, that's key number 1. Key number 2, if you're trying to protect your your linebackers but even your secondary and create more pressure on the quarterback, whether it comes from just a rushing four and winning one-on-one matchups or it's games and you're bringing do- some dogs and blitzes from from linebackers or off the edge with corners, it's going to do a much better job of protecting your secondary. And one of the questions going into this year's season is linebacker position and more specifically for the corners, Jeff Okuda. What can he do defensively in the NFL? What can he do to not necessarily live up to that number three pick, but just live up to the expectations coming in is that he could be a shutdown corner. If you've got to defend man-to-man or even in zone coverage for six or seven seconds, that's a disadvantaged position for any corner to be in, let alone a guy who's trying to get his footing in the NFL. But if you can create disruption in the backfield by getting after the quarterback and he's got to either get the ball out quick or he's just not able to get a good look at, at his receivers, now that gives him an opportunity to be much better at that corner position than he's been so far in his NFL career. And it's been limited because of injuries, but that's one of the guys that I, I, I talked about a couple of weeks ago that I think is going to have, needs to have, and is going to have a bounce back year. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I think he's uh, maybe you talk about, gosh, we hit on it maybe a couple months ago, but players that, 
Um, not so much question marks, but I think that we're going to have a target on in training camp and early in the season. And I, I think you got to put Jeff Okuda right there with Jared Goff. I mean, we talk about Jared Goff and how the offense is going to rely on what he can do from that quarterback spot. And we really feel like this is finally going to be the first year um, that we can fairly evaluate him because last year there just wasn't a lot of talent. Well, Jeff Okuda is kind of the same way. We know he's coming off injury, so there's going to be a little bit of leeway at least early in the season. Um, But now that you have hopefully a couple more playmakers around you on that defense, um, it's going to let you, it's hopefully going to let him shine. Now I hope he comes into camp ready and and is able to uh, uh, obviously stay healthy. That's Mm -hmm. been his biggest issue through the first couple of years, but um, just finishing on the, you know, the run game and and whatnot. I think the most important thing is look, if there's, you know, if the offense comes out and uh, you know, base personnel where they've got, you know, obviously the five linemen, tight end, fullback, whatever. They've got seven blockers, right? You've got to be able to win with seven guys in the box. Somebody's got to win, right? Mm-hmm. If, if they come out in sub-personnel and it's uh, 11 personnel where there's just five O-linemen in the tight end and you got six guys in the box, somebody's going to have to win because where we really saw them get in trouble last year is when, uh, you know, teams started winning those situations in the run game. Now you have to bump a safety down. You have to, the safety start playing a little closer to the line of scrimmage to help out with the run. That's when they were getting beat a lot over the top in the play action game and mm-hmm. the passing game because the corners didn't really have a lot of help over the top because they just couldn't stop the run. So somebody's going to have to be that playmaker where, hey, they, they got six blockers. We got six defenders in the box. Somebody's got to win. And uh, that's what's really going to help out. I think the young secondary as well knowing that the corners um, hopefully won't have to be, uh, you know, left in that one-on-one situation too much. Hopefully they've got a little bit of help over the top, whether it's Tracy Walker, Kirby Joseph, whoever's playing, uh, you know, the kind of that center field position in the secondary. But one question I want to ask you, John, before we get into our next topic, I mentioned earlier um, that, you know, when you talk about coaches and they're willing to not be stubborn, not have an ego, being being willing to change and adapt your scheme to what your player strengths are, I said, I think is a good sign of, of good coaching. Um, but we might have a new beef on the program because this past weekend I was doing some research and, and trying to keep up. And there's obviously not a ton of headlines around the NFL this time of year, but CBS Sports came out with their coach rankings oh, going into this year. I don't know I if you saw this. this, but Cody Benjamin, not sure who he is. That's not trying to be a diss, might have a new beef because you did, you said you saw it. So do you I remember the, where they the ranked Dan Campbell out of thirty two coaches? Well, if you're if you're if you're ranking them from worst to first and worst, worst to first. being 30 number second, one. 30 second being the worst. Okay, 30 second being the worst. Yes. So 32, 31, 30. I think he was third worst Yes. Um, in the NFL, which, okay. Do you have beef with that? Because I kind of looked at that and I said, eh. I, once again, we were talking about last week more position rankings, or, or I think it was the team roster, and I think last week was – were they the 29th or something? And we kind of had beef with that. We said we wouldn't put them in maybe the top 20, but... They were 25th. Being third worst for me, I think, was... Uh, that was a little bit... Uh, a little eye-opener for me. So here's... You, you got to take everything, at least this is how I do it, um, with a bit of grain of salt. Because 
when you look at that, I don't have it in front of me. Do you have it in front of you? I do. And here's okay. actually so the, who, who are the coaches behind him? Behind him, and then give me the two. Give me three that are they say are just a little yeah, bit better than. I'll him. give you a couple that st- stood out to me. So these three coaches, I'm sorry, four, five, five coaches were labeled as stuck in mud meaning these coaches aren't necessarily in ideal situations and it's hard to envision them elevating their squads. So 32nd, they had Lovey Smith, who obviously is taking over in Houston, yeah. which is a uh, tough place. To- they're going through a rebuild. I don't really have any beef with that. Lovey Smith had some success uh, when he was with Chicago. Gosh, what? 10, 15 years ago. Um, just behind him, 31. New coach, Matt Eberflus with Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, a lot of unknowns, him uh, being his uh, first-time head coach. And then you had Dan Campbell at 30. Um, right in front of him, they had Arthur Smith from Atlanta. He's in his second year. They were 7-10 and 10 last year. Um, also going to be without Matt Ryan. Uh, just at 28, Matt Rule. In Carolina, who has not seemed to have any sort of success in his uh, previous two years. Uh, I'll just give you the next two. Robert Sally, Selah at 27 with the Jets. They were 4-13 and last year. And then at 26, they had Dennis Allen with the Saints, who's obviously taking over for Sean Payton. But there was a couple other ones that kind of caught my eye um, with maybe being how high they were ranked. And this category says these coaches are the guys, right? They've had a ton of success. They take their teams uh, into positions where they can p- compete for division titles. Now, this one kind of caught me because he's obviously been a heck of a coach uh, for majority of his career, but the last few years have been terrible, and that's Ron Rivera in Washington. They got him ranked at 18. Uh, that was the first one that kind of caught my eye saying, I think that's a little high. Mm-hmm. Um, Cliff Kingsbury at 14, huh. which is, uh, that, that one kind of threw me off too. But I think the biggest one was, uh, Doug Peterson at number 10 with Jacksonville. Huh. And obviously Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl not too long ago. What? Six, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, but his ending in Philadelphia was not good. If you remember how bad they were offensively, especially with Doug Peterson being an offensive minded type coach. So those were kind of the ones that stood out to me um, as being maybe way too high. And then you had Zach Taylor ranked at 15, you know, going from worst to first basically last year with the Super Bowl appearance Um, at 15. So there were, those are just some names there. I wanted to get your opinion mostly on, Dan Campbell and where you think he fits in there. Now, I don't think, just like we talked about the roster last year, I don't think I'm ready to throw him maybe into the top 20 at this moment. Um, But if we're going off projections and what I think they're going to do this year and and how much better they're going to be, I mean, 30 just seems to be way too low. Now, talking about the coaches and where Dan Campbell is, um, ranked third worst in the NFL. Not a lot to go off of. So I'm not surprised that he's there. I am a little surprised that he is under some guys that have more of a track record 
like a Matt Rule. I think he's done absolutely nothing in Carolina. Now, yes, he's been hampered a little bit with some injuries. He was saddled with a quarterback um, in Sam Darnold that I don't really love. It's no surprise to see Lovey Smith at 32. Most of that doesn't have to do with Lovey Smith and his ability to coach. It has to do with the roster that he's been handed. Um, and, and he's going to have, uh, again, another a second-year quarterback. Matt Eberflus, yeah, they have a talented receiver. I mean, sorry, a talented quarterback um, in Justin Fields. But other than that, and we talked about this last week when we were talking about the ranking the, um, the rosters, I don't think they have a roster that's built to win. So whether Matt Eberflus is a good coach or not a good coach, we won't really find out. And he's kind of in the same position that Dan Campbell was last year, but even more so. Dan Campbell didn't have a lot of talent last year. And the talent that he had, especially up front uh, on the offensive line, was hurt. They didn't have guys available all season long. Uh, Romeo Okora on the defensive side of things just signed a new contract and was not able to play a majority of the season because of a torn Achilles. So to put him at 30, uh, you know, let's see by the end of the year because I do think that the Detroit Lions end up, if you're ranking the teams at the end of the year by record, they'll probably be just outside the playoffs. And so they'll be 19-20-21. If that happens, does the reputation of Dan Campbell, is it better going into next year because they overperformed expectations? Some of that can be players playing above what people expected, developing uh, the rookies playing, but it can also be coaches getting those players, putting them in position as we talk about making that switch to a 4-3 defense putting the players and the skills and the talents that they have, accentuating those and making better offenses and defenses out of it. I think that's what we're going to be talking about by the end of the season. But Arthur Smith is going to be in a tough spot because he's losing a veteran quarterback in Matt Ryan. Uh, Robert Sala at 27. I know that they got a lot of talent in the draft, but with Zach Wilson at quarterback, I'm not sold that he's going to be a legit NFL quarterback and is going to be weighed down by whether or not Zach Wilson plays good or not. Dennis Allen, I think, is in a tough spot because the Saints have some talent on their roster, but I'm not sold on Jameis Winston as their quarterback. And if he gets hurt, they've been so hamstrung by their salary cap I don't know that they have a good second option. And, I mean, let's face it, Jameis Winston's been hurt for a large part over the last couple of years. So there's a lot of things around that. And and then in regards to some of the other names that you brought up, Ron Rivera, I've been so unimpressed with what he has done. Now, they haven't had a quarterback. Um, You know, Ryan Fitzpatrick was probably their best hope at that quarterback position And then he got hurt early in the season last year. So a lot of what we're talking about is coaches' success or failure simply being the fact that they either have a quarterback or they don't. Yeah. Um, A lot of it's talent, you know. I mean, there's a lot of coaches that, look, you can put, you know, you can take Houston and you can put Andy Reid or Bill Belichick over their coaching. 
Are they going to win more than four or five games? Probably yeah. not. No, probably you not. Know? They probably wouldn't take that job. Right. You can take, you know, a team like uh, Kansas City or a team like uh, the Rams or the Buffalo Bills and put, you know, a first-year head coach up there, put Lovey Smith over there. Would he have success? Probably, right, yeah. because they have just a ton of talent around them. Now, the one that I think, there's two that I, I, I one I agree with you and one I don't agree and that one I agree with you in Cliff Kingsbury being at 14, I guess way too high. What has he actually done? They, yeah, they started off, they had at one point, deep into the season, the best record in the NFL last year. Yeah, I think at 9-1 and one or 9-2. and two, I mean, it was... In, it was in a very tough good. division, it was really good. <laughs> but they, every year, they seem to fall apart yeah. when they get to mid-November and December. They just have no staying power. And, I mean... All of that success in November and December, or lack thereof, can be decisions that a coach makes. And you and I both know this about how you take care of your vets in August and September so that they're available come November and and December. And we talked about watching that, uh, you know, Rams and Cardinals playoff game. Yeah. uh, That Monday night game. I've never seen a team look so... Just weak and non, you know, motivated and just sluggish and dead energy than I saw out of the Cardinals in the playoffs. And that was, to me, just a sign of a worn out team, whether it was mentally, whether it was physically. They looked like a they looked like they did not want to be on that field. And that for me is a huge concern that directs uh, reflects directly on the head coach. Yeah. Um, Now, the one that I do take exception with that you mentioned, Zach Taylor. Now, just to clarify, you think 15 is too high. I think he's too high, meaning you don't think he's as good of a coach. No, no, no. Meaning, I'm sorry, too low. Oh, too low. I think think 15 for him is too low with Uh, what he's been able to do in the last. He's going into his fourth year. Obviously, his career record is 16, 32, and one. You look at that, it's terrible. But obviously, going from uh, worst team in the league for probably four or five years to going to the Super Bowl last year, I think is. And I don't think it was a mistake. I don't think it was an accident either. I think the Cincinnati Bengals are going to be a damn good team. And, And so, again, I go back to. What do you have at quarterback? You've got Joe Burrow, who's going into his third seat. Last year, going into his second year. This year, third, who I think is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, You've got Jamar Chase. You've got T. Higgins. You've got skilled players around him. And then they've gone out this offseason, and they made a major investment in their offensive line. Yeah, okay, so you get some wins simply because you have talent. And you've got Joe Burrow at quarterback, talented, talented young man, and and a good decision maker. You've got talent at receiver. You've got talent in the backfield. Now you've got talent up front. I think he is a coach that I would put, uh, that I think is starting to develop the characteristics of an Andy Reid that is very creative offensively in how he uses the talent that he has is very creative in his his use of personnel uh the what they run things out of how they get into certain formations with different personnel groups i think he is i think he should be a top 10 coach now maybe the sample size is just not there but i think he's a coach that in another 5 years in another 10 years, we're still talking about in Cincinnati. And if you can win in Cincinnati, I think that in and of itself speaks for it, for itself. Yeah. But with 
the young talent that they have. Now, if they're going to have to be willing in Cincinnati to spend some money to keep Joe Burrow, to keep Jamar Chase, to keep some of these guys that are their playmakers, and if they decide not to, that you know, for the, the health of their salary cap, how do they continue to draft so that they have players in place to take you know, take on the roles of if, if they let T Higgins go in another couple of years, cause they know they're going to have to pay Jamar chase. Who is their second receiver in three years? That's going to be the big question. But yeah. I think Zach Taylor puts his guys in position to be successful through just creating matchups and, and things that, that are advantageous to their players. So I think he was, if we're going too low as, as you know, He's just a better coach than than is being ranked. Yeah. Um, Would you flip him? Now, there was one that I kind of missed here at number eight. <laughs> and this for me, a guy who had a lot of success kind of early on out in Seattle, but Pete Carroll at number eight. Um, I mean, for me, it's just, and look, you're talking about guys who have had success. I mean, he obviously won a Super Bowl, uh, 154, 104, and one almost 600% winning percentage in the league, which uh, is no small feat. Um, But when you take a look at what his teams have been the last couple years, what they're going to be probably this year with uh, Drew Locke as quarterback right as of right now, barring any trades or any moves that are uh, yet to be made. Um, But Pete Carroll being number eight, I think he's just kind of one of those guys where you look at the trends of the league right now. Andy Reid, Bill Belichick, those guys are still kind of hanging up there and obviously have great teams. They've been able to restock, rebuild, whatever you want to call it, and compete um, year in, year out. Uh, Pete Carroll's kind of one of those older guys where is his time kind of passing up a little bit where you see a lot of the trend now of let's go hire these young coaches. You know, Sean McVay, yeah. I think still, you know, 34 years old, Mike Vrabel, young guy, Kyle Shanahan, young guy, Matt, Matt LaFleur, young guy, uh, Pete, Pete Carroll for me being number eight, if we're going off what he's done, look, I mean, obviously he's a heck of a coach. If we're going off of, you know, last year projection this year, I think eight is just a, I think eight's kind of high for Pete. I think we're a lot of this list goes on cachet. What have you done? Yeah, and what have you done within the past decade? Because that 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 covers me a little bit with Lovey Smith being at thirty two, but their roster is so bad. Um, when you look at the guys that are ranked low, Matt Eberflus, Dan Campbell, Arthur Smith, Matt Rule, Robert Sala, Dennis Allen, like they have no cachet. They're st- we're still trying to figure out what they are, who they are, and, and what type of, of success they're going to have. And you start thinking about, okay, the guys that are at the top of the list, um, and Doug Peterson at number 10. Right? Do I think they're going to have a worst-to-first season? Absolutely not. But he has some cachet built up because he did win a Super Bowl in Philadelphia. Same with, um, you know, with Pete Carroll in Seattle. He's still got some cachet built up because of what he was able to do with Russell Wilson and winning a Super Bowl. Now, it's been a while, and what is he going to be able to do with the team that defensively was very poor last year? Now you lose your starting quarterback, your franchise quarterback, what type of season do we expect Seattle to have? I don't expect it to be very good, no matter if you've got Pete Carroll or if you were to have Matt Eberflus as your coach. I don't think it really matters because their lack of talent 
Um, and, it, and I'm surprised that we're talking about Seattle this way because I have a lot of confidence in John Schneider, their GM, who just upped, um, I think it was two years ago, signed a, an, an extension to be their GM. How does he work, rework that roster? What does he do with the draft capital and the players that he got from Denver in that Russell Wilson trade? Um, and what can, you know, Pete Carroll a lot of it is his ability to coach up quarterbacks, what he was able to do with Russell Wilson. Now, can he do that same thing with Drew Locke? I think there's a lot of questions surrounding a former first-round pick. Can he go up there? Is it a change of scenery? Is it a change of coaches? Is it offense? What is it um, that he is going to be able to go to do and do in Seattle that he couldn't do in early in his career in Denver? He's going to have DK Metcalf. That's a, a major plus in that column. So I think this is a let's wait and see what happens this year. Do the Lions outperform that over-under of six and a half wins? If they do, I think this list comes out next year, and you're probably looking at Dan Campbell getting up into the, uh, the low 20s. They make the playoffs the following year. Then you're looking at Dan Campbell being in that 13 to 16 range. They make a run in the playoffs. Now you start working your way up, and it's it's just a matter of the sample size just isn't there for some of these coaches, and somebody's got to be at 30. Somebody's got to be at 31 and 32. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing for me um, that I'm curious to watch unfold with Dan Campbell is how he learned from – uh, some of the mistakes last year, right? The time management, the yep. fourth downs, um, you know, some of the third down play calling where, you know, it seemed like half the time they were in third and eight or longer, it was a draw player, it was a trap, or it was something where you're like, you're not really giving yourself a chance to, you know, pick up that first down and continue that drive. How is he going to learn from some of those mistakes? Even, mistake, you know, late in the season, the, the second time they played Chicago where, you know, the back-to-back timeouts, and now you give them a first down, now they're able to run the timeout. How How is he going to learn from some of that, uh, some of the mistakes, and also some of the over-aggressive, <laughs> you know, play yeah. calls on fourth down, down. Um, you know, defensively, some of the play calls, some of the situational things with, you know, rushing three late in the game. Uh, how is he going to learn from those? And look, I think last year was obviously a totally different um, expectation around this team where they probably knew, you know, they weren't going to win a ton of games. So maybe that factored into screw it dude let's go for it on fourth down you let's see what we got let's see what kind of attitude these guys play with you know um but now that expectations are different we're expecting them to be a lot better um you know i think he's going to have to kind of temper down some of the hyper aggressive decisions that he makes and that'll be something that um look i mean it hurt him at times last year there were also times where you know, it was kind of fun to watch a yeah. little bit going forward on fourth and one and some of the reverses and double passes and all the creativity that he came out with. So, uh, but that's going to be, that's going to be a, a major focus, I think, for a lot of people is how is he going to adapt? Um, and not only coming from, 
uh, you know, being a little bit more of a team-oriented head coach rather than just taking over the offense like he did last year? How much is he going to allow Ben Johnson right, how you manage uh, to your do coaches. his thing uh, and just manage the team as a head coach? But also, uh, a lot of the big decisions that come in those situational footballs, two-minute, four-minute, third down, fourth down, red zone, uh, how is he going to improve in those categories, I think is going to be... Uh, it's going to tell us along... Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to let us know... Um, if he's ready to take that next step of being a head coach. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're centered and focused on Detroit Lions football, and that's the way it's going to remain here on Necessary Roughness. But uh, as we do reside in the Midwest, um, we, we often have news that happens in football that uh, involves the college ranks. And we'll just touch on this briefly. We've only got a couple of minutes. Uh, and that is... The Big Ten. And nothing in this world says Midwest like USC, UCLA. Like Los Angeles. Right. (laughs) And so just real quick, your take on the landscape of college football, how it's rapidly changing. And and we don't need to talk about NIL. We don't need to talk about Transfer Portal. We don't need to talk about any of that. But just, hey, the the SEC is soon going to be 16 teams with the addition of Texas and Oklahoma. That seems to be a geographically decent fit. USC and UCLA entering the Big Ten, there's nothing that says geographic fit about that, but it is two storied programs, two large fan bases, a huge TV market coming into the Big Ten. I I don't like it. (laughs) I don't, and I don't know if that's just... Gosh, the kind of old, old, old school type mentality. You don't like where, fireworks. You don't like you know well, razzle dazzle. Kind of like if you know when you talk about the Big Ten in college football, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, I mean, for me, yeah, but I, news, I think most people would argue that college football is broke right well, now. I mean, we're obviously moving in a direction where there's probably going to be three, what, three or four major conferences and instead of you know, the eight or two. nine. I mean, that's, you know, what, what is the PAC, what is the PAC 12 going to do? What is the big 12 going to do? I mean, they both just lost, uh, you know, some powerhouse teams. Are they going to merge together and create kind of a West coast division, right? We have the Southern division. We, I was going to, we have, we're going to have the Northern division yeah. with the, with the big 10. I mean, I don't know. And look, you're, you're way more dialed into college football than I am, but um, just seeing it. I mean, I don't, I, I just, it felt unnecessary. I mean, it, it really did. And I mean, God, I got to tell you, if I'm, you know, a, a player for SC or UCLA and every road game, you're on a four or five hour flight out east. Yep. I mean, that's going to wear your ass out, man. It really is. And But you're talking I, about in college football. So sometimes we get lost into, all right, you've got, you know, when we played, it was 16 games. You got eight road games regular season road games, and you've got eight home games. In college football, for the most part, you're going to have, for these larger programs, eight... Regu- you know, eight season home games, and you're only going to be on the road four times. Well, the bigger, One of those is going to be UCLA yeah. and USC facing each other. The bigger teams, Michigan, Ohio State, they've got, you know, just every team does it. Alabama, you get the eight home games because you yeah. pay a couple small schools, come get their ass kicked and hand them a check, <laughs> yeah. you know, to cover their athletic costs. So you're only but, talking about three look, yeah, trips but, of right, four to five I hours. Think, look, I think if the if these conferences are getting bigger and bigger and expanding, 
you're going to have to change those non-conference games. I don't think you can allow teams to play, you know, four or five out-of-conference cupcakes. I'd like to see, hey, if you got 16 teams in the conference, there's nine or ten conference games. Uh, make them make them, make them play against each other. You know, at least the top guys in there. Yeah. Um, and especially when you talk about the SEC um, and the Big Ten. I mean, you just, uh, I just, there's nothing that pisses me off more than <laughs> the you fireworks know, at you, night. Well, it's like you, you, a fireworks at night. B this guy I just mentioned on CBS Sports who bashed Dan Campbell, and C, um, you know, watching Big Ten games in October uh, that mean something. And then watching Alabama play Tennessee Chattanooga, yeah, you know, Citadel. and basically take a bye week or Citadel yeah. or something like that. And I know every team's do it. A lot of teams in the Big Ten seem to do it early in the season. But look, I think if these teams are going to expand, these uh, these conferences are going to expand. You're going to have to. I think you have to add more conference games. I think you got to make at least ten of the twelve conference games. That way, it means every every game means more. I just don't like the. You know the 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 cupcake games late in the season, especially when most other teams have to go through a grind. You know, Michigan, Ohio State, whatever it is, Michigan State. You got to play. Hey, we play Michigan State, then boom, Penn State, then boom, right in Ohio. That's three or four straight games that you know you can't avoid a mistake. So uh, I think it's got to. I think it's got to be that way for the rest of the conferences. But look, I mean, I I know you're more dialed in, like I said, to college football and especially the Big Ten landscape. I just, me personally, I just, uh, I just, I don't, I don't like it. It's, it all comes down to the business of college football and that's exactly, it's always been the business of college football, but it is highlighted now because the TV contracts, the big 10 is redoing theirs right now. USC, UCLA will be in the big 10 come 2024, which is going to happen quickly. And they were negotiating a contract and, and sources are, were reporting that it was going to be a billion dollars a year. As the, as the Big Ten stood previously with just 14 teams. Now you throw in the L.A. market, I think you're looking at one and a half to 1.7-ish billion dollars. And that means for athletic departments, you know, for each school in the Big Ten, when they become full-blown members, somewhere between 100 and $150 million per year coming into athletic departments per school. Yeah. And I just think that's, that, that is what is pushing all of this. It was an arms race originally in terms of facilities. Now it's going to be an arms race in regards to the TV money and who's going to have the most right now. The, the, the big 10 is the richest conference and looks to be able to stay that way with the addition of the LA market. So let me ask you this last final question. Where do you see college football in four years from now? I think in four years, we're looking at two conferences. And, and it's not going to... I think everybody needs to take a step back and, and say, okay, if we have two conferences, what does that mean? If you've got two conferences of 24 teams, you're going to have two divisions. You're going to go back to... I know the ACC is getting away from divisions. ACC is not going to be around. So you're going to have two conferences with two divisions, 12 teams in each division. So... You have a Big Ten East, which will largely look like the Big Ten that you and I grew up with. You'll have the Big Ten West, which will largely look like the Pac-10 and Pac-12 now that we've all come to know. It's just going to be the under the umbrella of the Big Ten. It'll be the same thing with the SEC. You'll have an East and a West. And 
the East is going to look a lot like the SEC did 10 years ago. And the SEC West will look very similar to parts of, they'll probably take on some Pac-12 teams, but like the Big 12 did. It's yeah. just, and, and so it's really going to come down to, are you able to get past the structure and the names? Because if you are, you're going to look at it and say, it's really still the Big Ten and the Pac-12 just under the umbrella of one conference. Now, how does that affect the smaller schools? You know, the MAC. You're still going to have those crossover games. The, the, you know, the, the, the games that you pay, you know, uh, sorry, Eastern Michigan (laughs) to come in and play because it funds Eastern Michigan's athletic department to be able to go play a Michigan and Michigan state or an Alabama uh, and whoever it is because of the gate that they're going to take home. Yeah. And for these still major programs, they're not going to want to have the thought of finishing a season sub 500 is not that, you know, uh, appetizing. Yeah. So if you can schedule three games that are, should be wins, now you go into your conference schedule saying, okay, we got three wins non-conference. If we can get three wins in our conference, now we're what used to be bowl eligible, and that's just simply 500. Yeah. And I think so. I initially thought that it was going to be, hey, they're only going to play each other. But when you start thinking about the possible records at the end of the year, they all want to be able to have eight home games. Three of those are going to have to come from non-conference opponents. And then five or, you know, four or five inside your, your conference is what's going to be the, the norm. Yeah. And I got to, I mean, be honest with you, I think uh, some of the matchups will definitely be very intriguing. Oh, USC um, coming to Columbus? Yes. Yeah, USC going to East Lansing? Especially, uh, you know, those early season, the first two, three weeks, you don't really seem to get any of those major games. But yeah. um, I think some of the matchups will be intriguing. Uh, last thing for me, though, I got just real quick. When is uh, when is Notre Dame ever going to man up and play a big boy schedule? Um, <laughs> I, I think they will. Uh, they're going to be a part of the Big Ten. And it's gonna. It's simply gonna come down to the business. I feel like we've been of, saying that for twenty years now. Well, we have, but there they might has finally been, get forced to make a decision, though. They yeah. are because if you're looking at okay, NBC who exclusively broadcast Notre Dame home games. Yeah. If they have eight home games and they get a contract from NBC that says we're going to pay you twenty five million dollars a year, which is an increase of what they're making now. Okay they bring in $25 million to your athletic department. How can you rationalize staying an independent when it's going to become very hard to schedule a Stanford, a USC, two classic matchups for Notre Dame becomes a bigger challenge, but it it also becomes 25 million versus 150 million a year. the, The numbers are going to be so great going into whether it's the Big Ten or the SEC, and it's clearly a better fit to go into the Big Ten, right? that Just they will eventually right. be a part of the Big Ten. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Well, and we will continue to uh, lead up to the start of training camp here as we continue to talk about the Detroit Lions and the NFL as we get closer to that NFL season on Necessary Roughness.